Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. <laughs> oh my god, I almost didn't do it. I almost didn't do it. I thought, is this in bad taste? But you know what? I went for it. I went for it, and I am so glad I did. Oh, worth it. Totally worth it. <laughs> The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? I'm a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think he thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Anybody can have a brain. You're a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. And this is a podcast where we talk about issues in philosophy and psychology, moral psychology in a very informal manner and Today is another one of our very special episodes uh, on a very like special a, episode. It's like an after-school special. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very bad wizards. We actually have on our podcast the, the researcher that we were talking about in our last episode. So let's get that started. Wait a minute, why can't just I give my maddening. opinion? This is a free country? He, he, he can give you, you have yeah. to give it so loud. I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. really? Really? I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny, because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me... Come over here, a second. Oh, tell I heard, her. I heard what you were saying. You you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. All right, and our guest for today is Joe Henrik. He'll be the Marshall McLuhan in this situation. We didn't. I don't know if we really disagreed so much in our interpretation, but there were certain things that it would be really nice to be able to clarify, and then just other stuff that we want to talk about with Joe, because you know when Dave and I talk about this stuff, often we're talking out of our ass. Great when, you, to have when you say facts. often, you mean all the time. <laughs> I guess that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with, with the first issue that we were discussing, um, and it was about the interpretation of your studies, the 15 small-scale societies study. Here, here was my idea about what you were demonstrating with, with these studies, which is that people have different norms of fairness that people in different kinds of societies often because of the structure or the cultural environment that they are living in they have different norms of fairness and so what would be what would be called fair in one culture uh, would be unfair in another culture and the expectations are different which is why the machu gang didn't reject low offers because there was no expectation of 
that, that that there would be a kind of equal offer. There was no expectation that that's what would would count as fair. So that was so that w- that was my interpretation. Dave, uh, do you want to say what yours is, and then we can? Yeah, actually, it's not so much a disagreement with that interpretation because I I feel like that that much that that there are different fairness norms is is. Uh, I think the the powerful finding of that paper. I think it's when it connects to the weird paper. When what I wasn't clear about is what the claim exactly would be about the universality. So what I was arguing with Tamler about was that what I what I think is demonstrated nicely in these cross cultural studies is that that there are that the content of sort of what what constitutes fair or unfair differs across society. But what I didn't think you guys were arguing or showing is that there are differences in basic inequity aversion. That is, everybody, every human being doesn't like unfair treatment. It just so happens that, say, as I was telling Tamler earlier uh, before the show, like there, we have a take a penny, leave a penny jar here. So I, I kind of know that like it would be unfair for me to grab all of the pennies just one day and just walk out because I, I scored. But there are cultures without without market economies, let alone take a penny jars. And it's not so, – so you could show that they have absolutely no compunction about taking the whole jar of pennies. But it's not saying anything about the sort of the core, the core psychology of fairness that's built into them. That is, they, would have, they might have a fairness norm about sticks that I wouldn't have. And that's, that's something that I think we could demonstrate even within subcultures here. Right, so it really is about the the small scale paper tied to the general weird claim that you guys are making, and right, so, yeah. Well, so let me just uh, so the the way I might might say the the claim from the small scale societies work is that we actually went into that with a hypothesis that you needed special sets of norms to make large scale anonymous societies run, and you had to be willing to treat people who you don't know and wouldn't see again in a fair way. Otherwise, you can't really make a market go because lots of market transactions are based on this kind of ephemeral interaction that you can't rely on other kinds of relationship cues. So we had a specific prediction about the relationship between markets and societal complexity. And we think the games don't measure some fairness in a, in a generalized way. We think it measures fairness in those kinds of situations that involve money, involve market transactions, you know, in which you don't have another relationship. So it's not about how you distribute birthday cake among your children or something like that. Right, it's very right. rich with all kinds of other relationships cues. I think we have other kind of evolved psychology for that. So this is saying we need special stuff to make markets go. And so that's the relationship that we emphasize about the relationship between markets. And we also find that, that participation in a world religion seems to predict higher offers in the ultimatum game. Yeah, that's great. So <laughs> testing a specific claim about how societies were able to get the institutions and internalize the right motivations to make large-scale op- societies operate. And do you have a, um, a stake in the causal direction here that is that is somehow somehow markets evolved and it pushes this the fairness norms into the psychology of the individuals or for some reason these individuals some societies might be better like a proto economy leads to internalization of some norms and what we've what we've always argued is that you know the i mean an evolutionary model doesn't have a causality often because it's two-way causality right so if you have norms that allow markets to work then markets are more likely to spread and you're more likely to develop markets and if you're gradually engaging in markets and you can put more and more of your labor uh into markets then you'll get more internalized more internalization of these norms so that so a two-way causality however data since our work has suggested that 
it's certainly true that if you just live closer to markets, you have more of these fairness norms. So um, Devish Rashtagi, an economist, did this work where groups, by virtue of lands they owned, were different distances from a market. And he uses the distance from your market to predict a bunch of these kinds of pro-social aspects of psychology. And then he uses that to predict the you know uh, conservation of trees. So he has this kind of nice set of connections, which it's, it's hard to argue the opposite direction causality, although I think that also exists. So uh, two-way causality on that. So, so is there some sort of underlying psychology that is common to all cultures that just manifests itself in different ways in your view? Or is it that the content of that can, can vary so that there is no underlying uniform psychology behind it? Well, both of you guys have kind of suggested that, that this, there's this fairness thing and everybody prefers fairness. But I'm not sure that's true. So I think there are kinds of relationships in the world where you expect to take the lower amount. And if the, if the higher, if the higher status person, the more prestigious person, the higher caste person, um, the older person, your father, any of these kind of vertical relationships, you're actually uncomfortable if you get, say, a, more than half the deal or, right. or you get something that makes it look like you're equal when you've got, when you both know you're not equal and he deserves right. more than half, whatever the right. cake is or she. So I think we have a psychology that allows us to think about vertical relationships, and it's it's our society that has particularly emphasized this equality relationship, as opposed to societies that have castes or other kinds of societies like in Polynesia where I work, where people actually, when they sit down every night at, at, at a meal, they line up according to rank. And the old hmm. senior members of the clan are at one end, and the kids and women are at the other end. And if you right. try to get a woman or a kid to sit at the far end, they're all uncomfortable. And as soon as somebody comes in, they right. immediately move down. Right, um, right. And if I try to sit at the end, I'll often, you know, try to assume low status and sit at the very, you know, sit down with the women and children. People get annoyed and they start moving me up the chain. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my so, my family is is from uh, South America, and every time I go back to Chile. Uh, it strikes me, you know, these are people who are by and large educated and as Western as you can get already. I mean, for South America, um, but nonetheless, the women cook the big meals and then they sit afterwards with each other and eat because they've been serving the men the whole time. And so I'll often try to like get up and clear the table and, and they get, they, they don't just tell me I don't have to do it. They get angry at me right. for like violating. So the norm, even though the norm puts them in the subordinate position. Right, but, right. But but Joe, so when I'm saying people don't like to be treated unfairly, I'm not equating being treated fairly with being treated equally. So I yeah, I, I, I mean, I would agree that in, in every culture, we don't always expect equal treatment. Although, of course, in America, there's, a, a, you know, there's more of an emphasis on that. But is there some sort of underlying commonality to the different things that would count as as fair? Or is that just not – or is fair not the right way to look at it? Should we just look at it in terms of broader norms? Well, yeah. So if, if fair doesn't mean equality and it means whatever it is other people think you should do, then I right. think we can have immense variation in that. So there are societies where you're supposed to eat your dead relatives and you have to consume the body and, and the women end up eating the brains and stuff. This is Kuru among the four, right? So there's all range of – Well, that's just wrong. There, yeah, there are societies where <laughs> – I was going to say the opposite. You're I supposed to cut the clitoris you of your daughter uh, off right. at a certain age, right? And these right. are all right and proper behavior. 
Tamler had that right. done to him, actually. It was, it was, <laughs> it's really actually a sad story. <laughs> but it wasn't the whole, you know, the, the, so, the whole thing. There's different uh, kinds. You didn't have the full infibulation. <laughs> right, right. This was right. Some, so I, that gets to a question as to whether there is any content to this. So what, what I was kind of defending, that there might be a universal fa- fairness, uh, inequity aversion, um, whether there is any content to my claim at all. So in order for my claim to just be to be more than just like we don't like it when people don't treat us the way that our norms say that we should be treated, um, that you would expect to find some very, very basic form of inequity aversion in, in for very small children or non-human primates that meant – you know, all things being equal, same rank individual, same age, same peer, that, that, uh, splitting the pie has to be 50-50. It's not, it's not just, it's not greeted with, uh, with, um, sort of a lack of emotion when, when somebody splits the pie in their favor. And, and I, and I wonder what you think of the work that's, at least the work that's tried to show this in, in toddlers and in non-human primates. Um, and whether there is there is any content to that most basic claim. Well, the first thing I, I want to say is that I'm I'm completely open to the possibility that there's um, a relationship for how to deal with uh, equal others. So that there's you know you can think of this in an Alan Fisk type framework. So he calls yeah. it equality matching. And that right. so one of the things you find in kinship systems throughout the world is there's hierarchical relationships, but then there's also this cross-cousin relationship very commonly. And this is a person who, you know, they have the same genetic relation to as other kinds of cousins that you call brothers and sisters. But with them, you're allowed to joke, you're allowed to touch their heads, you know, the men, males will hit each other in the butt. Um, you can make sexual jokes with the women, whereas it would be a taboo violation to make the same sexual jokes with your, with your uh, parallel cousins. And this is a very equality-based relationship, right? 50-50, no, you know, we're, all, we're both equals. We can have an argument, and it's perfectly fine. Um, so I think that's, that's a real possibility. As far as the existing work, I, I don't find any of the evidence in non-human primates persuasive. So you're talking about that Brosnan Duval experiment with the capuchin monkeys, right? Where where the where the capuchins were taught to exchange tokens for food, but they like grapes better than cucumbers, and when they saw one capuchin getting a grape for a token and they only got a cucumber, they'd get pissed, they wouldn't take the cucumber and they'd throw the cucumber back at the researcher, right? Uh, I wrote a comment on that paper in Nature uh, right after it came out. And uh, the comment was that if you do that game that they did, you do the human equivalent of it, Mm -hmm. um, humans do the opposite of what the capuchins did. So the capuchins throw away the cucumber and it doesn't reduce the payoff of the other guy. He still gets to keep his grape and eat it. And that's called the impunity game. And that's been won widely amongst student populations. So it's the ultimatum game without the without rejection meaning anything. Right. So if you play the ultimatum game with people right. and they can't reduce the payoff of the other guy, they stop rejecting. Um, so they do the opposite of what the monkeys do. Hmm. But that still wouldn't mean that they don't have some sort of aversion to being treated unfairly or unequally in that situation. It would just mean that they are even more spiteful than humans when when that occurs so you, right? they, that would be the argument that they have stronger fairness preferences than humans. oh yeah i guess and they'll really the, the cut other, off their nose their own nose to spite their face not even to spite the other person's face right well so there's been a bunch of follow-ups and you know of course there can be a, a sensible debate about all these kinds of things but i guess i'm favoring the side that suggests that this giving the cucumber sets up an expectation and that right. they don't like to have their expectations violating, but it's not the kind of fairness norm that you get in humans. You know, one thing that's always sort of uh, 
bugged me a bit about calling it even inequity aversion is that is is that it's not really inequity. It's it's only inequity. It's asymmetric inequity, right. right? And so so you have evidence that sometimes people do hyperfair offers. And if if it were really inequity aversion, we should reject even hyperfair offers, right? I mean, well, it, right, and we do, right? So um, in half the societies we study, people reject offers above fifty. percent Right, they do. We do, we don't. Right. Do Westerners do this? No. No, although yeah, right. there are ex- – actually, that's I shouldn't say that. So typical student populations don't. There's some experiments from Sweden where you begin to see that growth of the tail. So you get the highest amounts at, at 100% offers, and those are amongst mm-hmm. non-student adults. So there seems to be this big difference between student populations in these games and, and non-student populations, the rest of adults. And then you can use more sensitive versions of the ultimatum game. So in the ultimatum game, you reject and the other guy's money completely vanishes. You can do versions where you can uh, pay a little bit and reduce his pay a little bit. And there you see the beginnings of this aversion to... to, So 50-50 is clearly the right thing to do. And people vary and and they're much less willing to punish on this side, but it seems they have some taste for driving people back to 50-50. What's the explanation for rejecting hyperfair offers? Yeah, so um, this is actually really consistent with the anthropological literature. So the anthropological literature often talks about um, hyper-concern with inequality. So even when people will hide wealth, if they have a good harvest, they hide that amount because they think that people will envy them and um, and then bad things will happen to them. So there's just this concern that we're all exactly the same, and that, that goes both ways on both sides. So we can take the basic inequity aversion model and we can fit it to these other societies. It just means the the adverse in, inequity parameter increases. I wonder if you get a difference in like the hardcore liberal in the U.S. Uh, where they, they'd be, feel more shame at, at at accepting it. We actually tried to run some of these uh, at Cornell with a graduate student uh, where we did hyperfair offers, and we found that it seemed as if the the only instance in which most people still accepted the money, but they did make weird attribution, not weird. In, your sense. Uh, they, they made odd attributions about the other person, right? So it seemed as if either this person was somehow going to be manipulative by doing this, or maybe they were just rich and didn't care. Uh, um, right? Or trying to lord it over you or something. Yeah. Like so, they, so, so one of the ways that we found this is we, we asked people afterwards, uh, do you want to play a game? You're going to play a game with a partner. Do you want to play with a person you just played with or do you want to play with a brand new person? And for the hyperfair offers, they wanted to play with somebody else. They really wanted to avoid the person. Maybe because they felt obligated in some way to that person or they thought they were being... Um, we'd never actually published these data because that was the, uh, probably the only interesting finding there. And <laughs> probably manipulated the data. And- <laughs> it's really hard to fake uh, ultimate. It's expensive to fake ultimatum data. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seems like social psychologists are getting pretty good at faking a lot of data. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah. So let's talk about the weird paper because here's where if Dave has the courage to um, say it now to your face or to your Skype face, <laughs> he, has, he has some uh, – not, not criticisms of the weird paper, but criticisms of the certain interpretations of the weird paper as a real indictment of, of work in the yeah. behavioral sciences. Yes. Yeah. So if Tamler let me say it, then, sure. then maybe it would be clear. Well, yeah. can I, I, just wanna... I just knew you were going to sugarcoat <laughs> it. So I just at least wanted to set it up. Can I just, uh, right before you go, let me just slip in, because you had asked about the relationship between the games and the weird paper. Nothing about the findings suggests that there, there couldn't be this equality psychology right out there. And the question right. is, what would count as evidence for, the psych- psych- uh, for that? But right. um, 
what the weird paper contribution to this at is that is that people had been taking the standard student finding to be the human finding, and there's papers that say things like Homo recipicans and making and however we're going to find out whether this evolved psychology exists for for equality or not, we're not going to do it by studying undergrads. Was, would would right. be the weird people. Right. So the question is actually, I think that's the right question: is what is the the nature of evidence that's necessary to make a claim about sort of, about sort of the the basics, if if there is such a thing as a basic inequity aversion? Um, so my with the or weird basic pa- human nature and basic human nature in general, yeah. right? Uh, so talking about the weird paper, I found it striking. You know, I've I felt I feel like there there is always this latent sort of desire by not by us psychologists, maybe by people like Tamler, her philosopher, to say to indict the, the entirety of, of the psychological. Oh, I'm sorry, my yeah. dog. Sorry uh, about that. I've got these yeah, two no. pain in the ass dogs. I so love you should them. just kill them. Have you seen, by the way, uh, have you seen this video uh, where these? It's it's a total joke video, but it's uh, a bunch of college students go up to. Uh, the other college students do a video and they ask them how much money would it take for them to kill a puppy with their bare hands? Have you seen this video? No, no, (laughs) it's great. I got to send you the link. So the reactions that people give are ridiculous. You know, some people are like $1 billion. (laughs) They're like, and then some people are like, uh, five bucks. (laughs) And then at the, and then at the end, at the end, they actually bring a puppy like a month later, they go back to all of the people they asked and they bring a puppy. It's actually kind of like a, it's like a pretty big puppy. It's like a Labrador. Um, and they say, remember you said that you'd kill the, the puppy for $10,000 and they bring like a big novelty check. <laughs> and they, <laughs> wow. And of course everyone's like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> Except for like one psychopath kid. <laughs> uh, yeah, the puppy might be the thing I'd be least likely to kill. Like I kill a baby before. I kill you, that's what somebody says to get a kill yeah. a baby for the, but what's really funny is when somebody's saying, uh, like it would take a billion dollars. I don't think I could ever do it. Two billion, three billion. And then they go, it just in the very background, like somebody just you could it's barely audible. They say, "What about to save two puppies?" <laughs> and then they just it's like it's like they gave their brain a little girdle sentence and it just explodes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, all right, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, So the weird paper, which I think is had to be written, even though Tamler says that I was ready to excoriate you. I, I'm a, it's one of my favorite papers written in the past Thanks. decade. The question is though. And Tamlery, when you stepped outside because you can't keep your dogs under control, I told them that w- the thing that has bugged me is the reaction that people have to the paper when they say, see, you guys don't know anything about the mind because you haven't been studying, you know, the Bushmen or whatever. And um, and I think it, it it saddens me, not because because I agree with it, but because I think it's a deep misunderstanding about what experimental psychology has been contributing. And that's when I pull in the MOOC paper and you guys cite the MOOC, MOOC paper and, and you say sort of, you know, these aren't the sorts of studies that were, this isn't the there are studies that you do with a goal of, of say, disconfirming a hypothesis, and you can do this in a limited population, or you can do an existence proof in a limited population. And I think that the disagreement uh, would only be with the emphasis that, that in any way we've been trying to make these broader claims all along and that we've been failing. I, I think at least at least many experimental psychologists that I know have a good sense of what they're, what they're doing. Now, Tamler rightfully pointed out, though, that in our discussion sections, <laughs> that's when we really fuck it up. <laughs> and so I'm actually just from sociolo- sociological perspective interested in 
well, and A, whether your claim, whether you wanted the emphasis to be sort of uh, impugning all of psych- experimental psychology in the first place, and B, whether the, the journalistic, you guys are still getting press, you know, it's been a constant stream of press. I, so we had a resurgence re- recently. Uh, yeah, yeah. Specific standard. That's what we. That, yeah, that's what Dave was saying last time. It was like there was a huge explosion of, and then it died down a little bit, and now it's coming back. Yeah. 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 So, what do you take as the main take-home message, and how do you respond to the sort of criticism that psychology isn't really trying to do what you're criticizing it for? Maybe as much as it might appear in the paper. Well, I mean, I'm you know I consider myself an evolutionary uh, researcher, so I, I want to be able to make claims about human nature. So the question is, is I want to build a discipline that has the capability to make claims about human nature. And one of the ways we can do that is by theorizing about variation, saying you know we expect these ecological or economic variables to predict human behavior in this way, and for that we need to harness global variation. We need to understand history. Um, so the degree to which we can get understanding of history and then use the extant variation to fill that in. So um, I just we have a paper under review at Psych Science in which we uh, historians have made this claim that um, it's after wars that nations coalesce. Um, so this suggests that wars may have a psychological phenomenon. So we went to Sierra Leone just after the war with with uh, the Russians. The Russians invaded South Ossetia. And we did a bunch of experiments on little kids, and we showed how those who were affected by the war had very egalitarian preferences and you know, were more giving in a sharing game than kids who weren't. And we went to Sierra Leone and showed that those who experienced the Civil War during a certain developmental window had much more egalitarian preferences than those who were either too young or too old at the time of the Civil War. So this suggests that war impacts a generation, that you're a special generation if you're impacted by the war. So that tells us maybe about how wars have affected human history in the sense of creating opportunities for nation building. So, the, But to the more general weird people point, so this is just, so we want our paper to be very constructive and say, you know, how can we do what we've been doing but do it better? So what would you, can you give a paradigm of a kind of experiment that you think is less helpful and a kind of experiment that you might think is more helpful. Right. So um, I guess I, I would go back to having a theory about how things work. So I, ta- I described our things about markets and the evolution of society. So this suggests that, that fairness in these anonymous transactions ought to vary in a certain predictable way. And then so that means you need tools, psychological tools, to measure whatever these things are. And then you need some kind of way to test that and pick societies that vary along this continuum. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I think it goes back to the to, to building a theory that, that, that allows you to tap this variation. Uh, there's, right. you know, there's so, some of these ideas about pathogens. I mean, I, I think that, that marriage practices of a society actually have a big effect on uh, male psychology in terms of testosterone. So, you know, there's this idea that, or this evidence that male testosterone drops after their first marriage and first child, sort of domesticating males. But in polygynous societies, and, and most 85% of human societies have been polygynous, you're still on the mating market after you get married. So, you, you know, te- so when they do the testosterone there, the male testosterone stays high because they're still dating in some sense. You know, Joe, I propose an experiment. We test married men's testosterone levels to see if they're actually still considering themselves on the market. So, so Tamler, <laughs> Tamler, do you I intend know. to be faithful? Let's uh, let's see. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there'll be a lot of individual variation on that. <laughs> no, no, there won't. <laughs> um, so you know, and that's that's fair. Not to, no pun intended. I think the question is. <clears throat> 
you know, I was rereading the interview that, that Tamler uh, had with you for your, for his book. And you guys at some point uh, are talking about chicha and the machiganga or, or whatever the machiganga call that drink, which. Asato. W- yeah. Okay. And so you point out that there is, okay, so there is disgust and then, and then chicha is just not disgusting for some of these people. Is there, so, so you can imagine now a two-step process where you try to uncover a psychological process um, and you feel like you document it. And now you, t- you take a step outside and see sort of the parameters and how they vary. And you can do this, I think, rightfully with your, your, your marriage of anthropology and evolution, I think, is the right place to start for, uh, for building a theory about why and how you should expect variation in this. But it's that first part of establishing a psychological phenomenon that I think within the confines of American or, you know, North American psychology, we can start there. And then build, and then build a case. It's just so so it pro, it progresses a bit more slowly than we might expect. So we could do priming experiment. Nobody thought priming existed in the way that it, that. Let, let's assume that the studies are real. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, sidestep these issues. Assume that they are reliable, true findings, and uh, and and you show that smiley face, subliminally flash smiley faces affect the rate of consumption of a drink, right? So nobody's really saying that this, that, that, uh, there are really smiley faces being subliminally primed in, in everyday life, let alone in, in the life of a, a person in a small scale society. But it says something about the mind. Now you can get a bit more creative about how you might expect this mechanism to work across societies where, uh, where you have a completely different environment culture. Maybe priming isn't the right way, but an emotion is this way, right? Where, where in, in a way, kind of like, like Chomsky wanted to do with linguistics, you'd say, this is the, this is the raw stuff. And then this is the, these are the parameters that can vary. The question is, how do you distinguish now? And I think you pointed to this to fairness. Like, what, what sorts of evidence do you need to say that this is the raw stuff and this is the varying parameters? Right. Although one other point I'd want to make is that I think if we're right that Western psychology is particularly weird or unusual, and psychologists often develop theories from intuition. So, right, most psychologists aren't evolutionary the way I am. Right. So that means they're using weird intuitions to develop their theories about human psychology. Right. So it seems likely that they're often going to end up with really what are peculiarities of weird psychology rather than the core. And so if psychologists, for example, had more cross-cultural experience, more cross-cultural training, or worked in multiple labs distributed across, maybe you did your, everyone did a postdoc in some part of Africa or, or the South Pacific or something, then I think they'd have a better chance of doing this. I mean, Doug Medine thinks uh, that we should just be bringing more diverse populations into psychology, but that would depend on more diverse populations being interested in joining psychology. <laughs> right. So do, do you think then that a, that the kind of experiment that, that Dave's talking about that is just going to be a launching pad to telling you something that might be a sort of universally core feature that will manifest itself in different ways, but, but, but the kind of population that you should even be starting that with is maybe not a weird population. Well, I mean, the, less. the thing is, weird. The weird sample is so convenient, right? So, um, I mean, on practical grounds, you can argue for the weird right. sample. You know, it's the question of who's outside your front door versus doing more work than that. But we could imagine a future in which you know these labs are linked across diverse populations, and if if you have close collaborators or reciprocal uh, ob- uh, reciprocal agreements with labs that are scattered throughout the world in different parts of the globe, it might not be harder or cheaper for you to to get an Indian sample or get a, get a Nigerian sample as it is for you to get these other samples. And do you think if you can only do one of those samples, do you think you're just going to have a better 
chance at getting at something? Well, I think that a lot of that depends on what the what the theory, what the hypothesis is. So, if we're generating this from our folk psychology, what we happen to find interesting, then we're gonna we're gonna pick a lot of weird topics, and I mean that in, the, in, in my weird way because so when you look at a psychology textbook, there's no kinship chapter. But kinship dominates human societies, right? It's the thing which organizes most societies throughout human history. Yet like, there's no psychology of kinship. Um, religion. Religion is a crucially important thing in humanity. But if you open up a social psychology textbook, there's no religion chapter. And not very much on religion. Um, so these so are, what are the weird things religion. that we're obsessed about? <laughs> weird things that we're obsessed about that wouldn't generalize. Uh, well, so I'm just um, you know free associating now, and I, I, I happen to have this excellent colleague Liz Dunn. But I think that uh, Liz is awesome. Yeah, she's. Uh, yeah. Um, but I think we're obsessed with happiness. I think <laughs> yes. yeah. absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And what we're so there's this notion um, that social guy psychologists have that we're trying to maximize happiness. But when I yeah. and I get that sense around here, but I don't get that sense when I'm in another society that everybody's going around trying to figure out how they can experience more hedonic it's the, pleasure. It's the oddest. It's the oddest motive to posit that 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 I would do that. The percentage of things I do directly to increase my happiness is actually pretty low. I think. I, I mean, I put myself in very locally miserable states. Thinking, if you ask me, probably will make me happy because it will fulfill a goal, a long-term goal of mine. But it's not as if that is a central motivator right now. Like, you know, you, you just put yourself through misery after misery. Like, you know. Right. Like all those nipple clamps that you always are wearing. <laughs> or just talking to your dumbass. I, I always thought that, that made you happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that you were after something else. Yeah, but. no, but, but I have always found it weird. And this is maybe being raised by Latin American parents where, where you say, you, they, when I first told them about these, these findings about a uh, child having children reducing happiness, um, they just looked at me puzzled uh, as if <laughs> as if this was what people were thinking about when they had right. kids, like the, the deep satisfaction that having kids. You know, yeah, of course, like you hate waking up at six in the morning, you know, like, of course. Yeah, but but that doesn't make them unhappy. That just makes them slightly miserable in the moment. So what's another one? Happiness is a great one. I can totally see how that is a singular weird obsession that is a kind of a weird a, a strange cultural artifact that would be interesting to do a kind of sociology on that do you have any other examples well i think you know i'll use one that has already been pointed out by john height but sort of the the concerns about fairness and equality dominating morality over divinity or purity and things like that whereas in other places it seems like those other things are, are quite important okay. right so let me mount a little bit of a defense though for for say basic basic cognitive psychology where it's i think it's harder to build a case that that we're focusing on oddities so when you look at visual perception and memory and all of these sort of basic functions i think we've learned such a great deal about just take memory for example um by by studying you know, the, the most limited of samples. And it's because what's interesting about memory is finding, I think, the constraints of the human mind. And so, for instance, it used to be thought by many that, that memory is like a photograph and, and all you need is the right tools to access, access those memories and they'll be there. And I think that we know now that that's not the case. Now, every once in a while, you meet a savant that has, you know, that has perfect memory for every day of their lives. But that doesn't, really mean that we haven't sort of we haven't painted the right picture of the constraints of human memory and now i and i'm not sure what what we would expect to gain from having studied memory in in 
a bunch of other cultures other than that maybe they're you know you're better at remembering species of trees right so you guys what is, yeah so we're i guess i'm less confident than you um yeah. on that because uh so i mean take take the our one of our prime examples with the Mueller liar illusion yeah. um so yeah, that's the one that's the one example in your paper that has constantly messed with me and i and i can't i, I i'm hoping that it's not true but go ahead well <laughs> i mean it does make some good sense right in the sense that you know our brains are going to adapt to the visual environment that they're going to raise in so the degree that they can yeah. calibrate it's not surprising that our, our world is unusual in having all these right angles nobody else has you know square corners all around them square doorways all this kind of stuff so we should calibrate towards that if, if we have any flexibility in the system at all um and you know we don't have memory research from diverse societies and my ethnographer's intuition is that people in non-literate societies have better memories because they have no external there's nowhere to write things down you've got to remember it right. it's all your information is stored in people's heads so they may have trained up ways just from living there and having to use their memory and not ever being able to write anything down it might turn out they have better memories um, we, right. but we don't so know like, so iPhones are killing us right? I, I, I'm perfectly happy to be wrong but there's no evidence to show that I'm wrong yeah, and I, I guess I, I'm trying to make a more basic claim, but I'm not sure actually what that claim would be. That that it is that there would be some structure to memory, sort of sort of that that there is sensory memory, short term memory, long term memory. That that's what we what we know about, and that and that you could have variability. That some people are better than others, but you know that from from studying us, right? We know that there are differences, and so of course we might expect that there would be differences. Uh, culture to culture, but that's not getting at the core of sort of the structure of memory that we've learned a great deal about that. That that that, for instance, that there is a difference between sensory and short-term memory, and that there there are certain certain ways in which in rehearsal improves memory. Mm-hmm. And so I, I at least want to cling to this. This is my optimism. So, I mean, one yeah. one thing I think that it w- is useful to, to would be a good approach to clinging to is if you can show that, for example, rats and humans' memory systems operate in the same way. Right. So probably a lot of, of um, BNS or cognitive psychology is safe because, you know, they're making, they're finding the same memory systems in, in many different species, including humans. Right. So, or the way the brain forms memories, a lot of that's going to be the same in different species. So that's all fine. Um, but the number of elements we can keep in short-term memory, for example, seven plus or minus two, I wouldn't be surprised if we found another society that's eight, you know, plus or minus one. Right, right. All right, let's take a quick break. Joe, I know you don't have that much more time, but when we come back for part two, let's talk about some of the ethical implications of some of the things we've been talking about uh, and also maybe some of the social and political implications as well. So join us for part two. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We have a special guest on the program today, Joe Henrik. I don't even think we thanked you for joining us. Oh, no, it's great. Good so to be let's, here with let's you. do it like 50 minutes later. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah, well, let's, and let's get some a little bit of the ass-kissing out of the way because what I wanted to say is that, that uh, 
it's it's a tough to be an anthropologist who somebody with an anthropological background who also is is uh, doing psychology and evolutionary psychology. I think because you and Stephen are, a, we should also acknowledge as the other as the other authors of the weird paper, um, uh, b- because of their background. It, yeah, Ara um, and Steve Heine, because of their background, I actually took it very seriously. It's a real thoughtful claim, right, about about the human mind. And it's a, it's a perplexing one for somebody like me who has to now reconsider the, the sort of the nature of all of the claims that we make. Um, so so that, that aside, I, I had promised well, the ass-kissing. I, I can one-up you on ass-kissing. Yeah. <laughs> when I emailed you to ask for an interview, this was just on the basis of the Small Scale Society's paper and then the book that was published. And at the time, I thought that was the most exciting piece of research that's being that was done that I knew of. I thought it was the most amazing thing. And that was before the weird paper, which then vaulted you into a new level of celebrity. Uh, right. So yeah. Before, it, he yeah. just used to be like the rage of, amongst the Machigenga, right. uh, who had like posters of him. And like, the, like, exactly. the, like preteen girls have posters of him. Uh, so a couple of things that – the second thing may be more important, which is you know now that it's the 10-year anniversary of the Iraq War, a lot of people are producing some mea culpas about our intervention there. And I want to know if you think that – the sort of some some weird preoccupations may have led us to be overconfident, maybe about uh, our role there. But before we ask that, I want to say Dave mentioned about the Mueller liar thing that 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 disturbed him, and he found that deeply unsettling, and it, and it, and he hoped it w- wasn't true. And then in this uh, interview that you did with Pacific Standard, oh, yeah. the the author of it expresses us us. Similar concern. He he says, and I'm reading now, that the idea that I can only perceive reality through a distorted cultural lens was unnerving. Uh, For me, the notion raised all sorts of metaphysical questions. Is my thinking so strange that I have little hope of understanding people from other cultures? Can I mold my own psyche or the psyches of my children to be less weird, to think like the rest of the world? If I did, would I be happier? So there you <laughs> see, see. he's concerned about <laughs> happiness. There, there, right. there it is. It all comes down to... to Demonstrated his weirdness by asking about being weird. <laughs> exactly. So I guess he answered his own question. Uh, but why do you think that this is? Because I don't totally feel this as much. Why do you think this that that what you're doing is so unsettling? Yeah, I'm not, I don't have a good intuition on that. I mean, I guess it's unsettling on to psychologists because it, it, I think it means they have to change a little bit about what business as usual is, right? And they're going to have to think about you know dealing with these issues. Um, but I mean, for if you have any kind of anthropological background, this is really kind of cultural anthropology 101. Um, the only thing is, when you have experiments and these reliable tools and stuff, it's it can make a more persuasive case if you have an orientation towards science. Um, I mean, a lot of cultural anthropologists respond with, "Oh yeah, of course we knew all that." Right. 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 But do you feel a kind of I don't know that you're like your equilibrium is messed up or something like that if all of a sudden certain basic aspects of human psychology are variable? 
Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, I, Dave, I you're a better person to ask since you <laughs> seem to feel this. More. No, I mean, at the end of the day, what we want is truth. And I think that the, the, the discomfort stems from two, from, from two sources. One, which, which Joe points out, which is shit. Does that mean we need a mechanical Turk for small scale societies now? You know, <laughs> do they, can I send a survey monkey link to, <laughs> to the Bushmen? <laughs> right. So, so that's one, but that, that should just mean that, that we should develop a, better tools. The other one, one is is more stemming from a, a desire not to discard what we think has been accumulated evidence for universality, <clears throat> and so in in the bane is it, the bane is a bit more serious than just we should study other cultures. It is at what point can we say we have evidence that constitutes a reliable claim about the universal human mind? Do I need to, you know? Can I study? Is fifteen small scale societies enough? Um, at, at what point can I, can I really say that in fact seven plus or minus two seems to be a universal human constraint? And if it can't stop and if it can't stop until, until we've studied pretty much every group on the face of the planet, then, then it just is a little bit daunting. And I don't, I, I want there to be. So it's al- professionally unsettling for you more than it is personally. Yeah. 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 But, but, and it's not even that because Joe, you were saying earlier, right? That people in, in, in times of war, react differently and more equitably than people. Well, it's right? actually the so experience of war changes your internal preferences. The experience of war changes your internal preferences. So it's not even that you would have to study people of, from all different types of societies, but at all different times within those same societies, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, one one way to think about this is is. Uh, one of the things I think psychologists should do, and economists are beginning to do this, is to take advantage of natural experiments. Um, so we took advantage of the fact that Russia happened to attack the Republic of Georgia and you know, use that to see how war affects people that were in different parts of the Republic of Georgia. You know, there's all kinds of – so, for example, if you want to know how institutions might affect people's psychology, you can look at East and West Berlin. So here's people who live in pretty much the same environment until 1989. Uh, I, I mean, uh, their, their environments became mixed after 1989. So did right. the prior right. experience of living in East versus West Germany, how does that affect their psychology? And there's some behavioral economics to suggest it does. So there's, you know, this stuff's all, there's all kinds of natural experiments all over the world. Can we talk about this second issue, which is the, you know, the, with the 10th anniversary of the Iraq war? I think a lot of people, it, it, it's funny just to read all the, you know, the articles and a lot of the so well-intentional liberals who wanted to go into Iraq and who are now, it's like a big confessional. <laughs> They're all writing these uh, these long columns about where they went wrong and why. Is that something that you trace that you think your work has a little relevance to? Because I could see maybe how it might this uh, idea about why it might be advantageous for everybody, even morally justified to go into Iraq, might have been a kind of a weird notion in your sense. Well, I think that uh, I mean the, the only thing I have to contribute to that is. Uh, there's this notion, which I think is both in economics formally and also part of our folk understanding of how the world works, which is that if you put people in the right institutions, then everyone will behave the same or behave properly. So if you bring institutions of Ohio to Baghdad, they'll start behaving like people in Ohio. And you know, there's just this right. interface between people's uh, acquired motivations and beliefs and values and, and, and whatnot, and the fit with institutions. So you can't just transport institutions from one place to another. So if you take the U.S. 
constitution and take it to another country, which has been done, it just it doesn't start operating like the U.S. because there was a whole set of things that were on the ground at the time that that formal institution overlaid the cultural system and the informal norms and whatnot. Um, is that a time thing or is that, you know, it just needs more time or eventually could a democratic <laughs> institution well, um, cause? I mean, this is a big debate amongst development economists because they're trying to figure out exactly how to do this, in, not necessarily in Iraq, but in other kinds of situations. So just one quick example is that the, um, you know, when the when the Americans had to reorganize the, the Baghdad, they had to, one of the things they had to deal with was traffic patterns. And so they took the traffic code from Maryland. And just applied it and made it the traffic code of Baghdad. And it turns out that Baghdadis don't drive like people in Maryland. So, of course, it was a big mess and just the old rules just kind of kicked in and it didn't matter what the code was because there was this ill fit. But then you don't know what to do if you're police and um, it creates a problem. But, I mean, I think the answer that's emerging is, is that these things have to evolve endogenously and you might be able to do things to facilitate the endogenous involvement. So in New Guinea, there was a paper in Science by Polly Wiesner recently. And, you know, there's this legal system, which is, was basically the British legal system, which gets imposed on New Guinea. Um, but then, you know, there was all these wars and constant violence and whatnot. And, and, and once uh, M16s got loose in the highlands, there was all these tribal clashes and battles between clans. And it was, it was awful. And this is in the 1990s. Um, but then what emerged was these local tribal courts, which aren't which have quite different rules. So they're tribal elders who run them. They're formal courts. They hear from witnesses and stuff. But then they seek re- they seek um, uh, payment. So if you hurt somebody, you have to pay the relatives. So it's using old values and old systems of compensation, which we don't do. So it, it works differently than our courts. But it, it's the violence has gone way down. It seems to be very successful. Uh, Jared Diamond writes about this a bit in his new book. Well, should we ra- we should probably wrap up because uh, it's already been p- past an hour for Joe. We, we could- yeah, fortunately, my oh, next appointment is yeah. late. Well, uh, well, thanks very much, Joe, for for joining us. This was a lot of fun, and it was good to talk to yeah. you again. Definitely, we appreciate it. Okay, guys. Thanks See you later. later. <laughs> bye bye. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. I'm a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think we boss, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard.